Good morning. It is good to be here. I'm so glad to be here with you guys this morning. Um, before we get started, is there anybody who needs a Bible? If you left the house and don't have a Bible with you, we have some in the back we'd love to share. If you could just raise your hand, uh, the ushers can provide one for you. We're starting a three-week study on thankfulness, and so um, so we're here this morning addressing that. Um, I know that the elders are meeting, and they've been praying for us and, um, and excited about the work that they're doing there. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, I'm a teacher. I've um, been teaching for 22 years now, which is crazy, crazy. Um, uh, but for the last 10 years specifically, I've been, um, I've been looking at um, research and neuroscience on learning and, and how the brain learns. And, um, and one of the things I found is that um, true deep learning doesn't come from perfectly crafted lessons where the answers are predetermined and kids are taking notes of, towards that function. But, but true learning comes when we have our own personal questions and we seek to answer those questions. Um, and there's lots of things that, that I was told, that we were told as kids, that is um, ridiculous now when you think about it, that we're only born with a certain amount of brain cells, and if you lose those, you won't get any more. And Okay, that <laughs> we're constantly producing brain cells. Um, all of those things that, are, that our mind is uh, static and it doesn't grow, we've learned that um, brain plasticity is the fact that our brain is constantly changing the way that we use it and how we uh, focus on things. And... Um, and having the right approach and mindset um, really affects how we learn. And what's funny, uh, as we've gone through the, the study of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. It's amazing how much of this was known before all this new science is showing us. But one of my favorite passages comes from um, Psalm 119, when David's talking about his love for God's word. Um, and there's a little section um, in verses 97 to 104 and he says, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. It's just this uh, time when David is, because um, he starts saying that he's hidden his word in his heart, that he may not sin against him. But, but the study of God's word has just given David wisdom beyond. At one point he says, I'm wiser than the elders because I know your word. And so, um, so today my hope is that as we look at his word that, um, that you guys will be active in um, your pursuit of this. Um, there's this tendency in, in schools, um, I lay all the blame on the school system, but has created, uh, taught us to, to be passive listeners, to just go sit, listen, spend your time and, and move on and um, and I don't want that to happen today. I want you to be engaged um, because you guys have a role to play um, in developing questions, answering questions, um, being engaged. God never intended church service to, to be a passive event. Um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul teaches about the gifts of the Spirit, and he explains the function of the church and the roles of, of these giftings and, and how they're all supposed to be different and work together and so he gives this, uh, this explanation analogy of the, of the gifts working. Um, and then halfway through, he stops, and he gives um, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Well, it comes right in the middle of his discussion on the gifts and how they work and how we're supposed to come together as a body. Um, and so, uh, so after he breaks from that, later in, in 1 Corinthians 14, he says this. When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. And let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, at first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. 
And so this, this expectation, when the church gathers, when we come together, we're all to be interacting and engaging. We're all to be sharing what God's doing and what he's, um, what he's done in our lives in, in the past week. Um, what I need from you guys this morning is, um, is prayer. Because my gifting is, is teaching. And, um, and the problem is that because that's what I do, it's what I'm gifted in, it's, I have a tendency to lean on my own understanding and my own, my own works. And so I need you to be praying for the humility so that God can speak through me this morning. As we come together, our hearts should be to serve one another. And so in Colossians 3, Paul writes, So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Um, When we come together, we all have a role. We should all be coming with psalms. We should all be coming with encouragement and prayers and teachings. Um, Just as I'm up here teaching today, so you should be up here teaching at some point. Um, Because God's called us to to that, to work as a body and and doing these things. Um, Scripture talks about ironing, sharpening iron. Iron sharpening iron. Um, and I don't know if you've ever seen anybody working iron or if you've ever seen sword play, but sparks are flying all over the place when that's happening. That should be what's happening when we come together. We should be, um, we should be doing these things and engaging in a way that, um, that causes us to, uh, to be better and to, to strive hard after Christ. Um, we all have swords. It shouldn't just be me up on stage wielding a sword and you going, ooh, ah, oh, I mean, that... <laughs> Or, oh, man, whatever. That, it, it needs, we need to be engaging with each other and, and um, working together. Um, I love when James says that Elijah is a man like us. Um, because Elijah did amazing things. But it wasn't Elijah. Elijah just yielded himself to God, and God did amazing things with Elijah. And so that's my prayer for us today. Um, last week, if you were here... Um, Last week was such a blessing to me, and it strengthened my faith. But it wasn't the singing, although the singing was great. And it wasn't the message, although Tim did a great job with the message. For me, the blessing was hearing was hearing that the Barcenas family accepted Christ, because we've been praying for that, and I know at home we've been praying for that. <clears throat> And then we saw a video clip on uh, Richard Wormbrand and, and what he did in uh, prison in Romania. And then the church stood as a body and prayed together. And that was all a blessing. But, but even more, God was speaking to me because he was moving in my heart to prepare me for today, his grace and his mercy. And when I teach, I... I never worry about having enough to say. I, I have too much to say. That's the problem. Um, but it's not me who needs to speak today. It's God who needs to speak. And I don't want to misrepresent him today. This is a precarious place to be because because um, I need to know what God wants to teach on and what he wants to say. And So last week was such a blessing because God, holy God, creator of the universe, took the time to show me that he was here in the message today. And there's been many things that have come up. Um, And when Tim asked me to teach a few weeks ago, I had all these thoughts of things that I wanted to say and things I wanted to cover. But it was was difficult to weed through everything and and get down to what God wanted. And so 
last week as I was here, um, God just reaffirmed a lot of things. One of the things he did, <clears throat> I have a book that I had read and I haven't touched in a couple years, and, and I just pulled it out and I started reading, and I thought, man, this is super encouraging. I should, I should read this as part of the sermon. And I thought, no, it's reading from a book. I don't know. It's a lot of... And, um, and then we saw the, the movie last week. It's, the author of the book is Richard Wormbrandt. So as we saw the movie last week, God's saying, okay. So I'll be reading from that in a little bit. <laughs> um, and I was encouraged that God would take the time to reveal to me no one special, just someone in the church, what he wants me to say. But that's who God is. That's how our Heavenly Father works. And that's what he wants from you guys too. As, as we hear from God, he wants us he wants us to share that when he speaks to you. He wants, to share, he wants you to share what you've heard from him and how he revealed it because that encourages other people. Um, it's his goodness to us, and he wants us to share that with one another. Um, even the song, Tim asked me, um, he goes, are there songs you want to tie to your message? And I said, you know what? I said, no, I'm good with whatever because I feel if the Holy Spirit's in it that he's going to come. And the one song that was on my heart that I wanted to have was I Will Look Up. And so what a blessing to say today to sit there and see. So I'm encouraged today. And I want you to be encouraged as well. So we're starting a mini-series on giving thanks in preparation, in preparation for Thanksgiving and we're going to start by looking back. Today's theme is looking back and being thankful. And then we'll be looking at kind of a present thing with the, uh, today's focus is Psalms 105. Next week, the focus will be Psalm 100. And then 107, we'll be looking at the future and thanking him for what's to come. So today, if you'll turn to Psalm 105, uh, we'll read that together. Um, I'll ask you to stand while I read. Unfortunately, it's not one of the little five first Psalms. It's a long one, but... If you'll stand with me while I read. <clears throat> oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonders which he has done. His marvels and the judgments uttered in his, from his mouth. O seed of Abraham, O servants, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as a portion of your inheritance. When they were only a few in number, very few, and strangers in it, and they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sakes, not to touch my anointed ones, and do, not, uh, and do my prophets no harm. And he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters, and himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him and the ruler, the ruler of the people and set him free. And he made him lord of his house and ruler over his possessions to imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham and he caused his people to be very fruitful and he made them stronger than their adversaries. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with the servants he sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen, and performed wondrous acts among them, the miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark. They did not rebel against, and they did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters to blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs. Even in the chambers of their king he spoke, and there came a swarm of flies and gnats in all their territory, and he gave them hail as rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck down their vines also and their fig trees and shattered the trees of their territory. He spoke, the locusts came, and the young locusts, even without number, and ate up all the vegetation of their land and ate up the fruit of the ground. 
He also struck down all the firstborn in the land, the fruits of all their vigor. Then he brought them out with silver and gold, and among his tribes there was not one who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud of covering of fire, a cloud for a covering and fire to illuminate the night. They asked, and he brought quail, and satisfied them with the bread of heaven, and opened the rock, and water flowed out of it, and it ran in the dry places like a river. For he remembered his holy word with Abraham his servant, and he brought forth his people with joy, and chosen ones with a joyful shout, and he gave them also the lands of the nations, that they might take possession of the fruit of the people's labor, so that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you. So grateful for all that you've done. The way that you provide and watch over us. God, that you call us into a work that um, that you empower us to do. And I thank you for that. God, I thank you that, uh, that we've come together today to, to worship you. I lift up the other churches on the hill, God, as they come together to, to seek you you would just do a work among your people draw us closer to you I pray for the children in their Sunday school classes that you would just God reach out and touch them and make yourself known to them and raise up your people God to be a people who love and worship you and bring you glory and honor these things we pray in your name amen Psalm 105 begins with, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. When do we say thank you? We say it in response to somebody who has said something to us or has given us something or has done something for us. Um, And we say it as a result of something that has been done. So it starts out by telling us to give thanks. And so let's look and see what the Lord's done. He follows that with call upon his name. What is in the name of God? Remember when you were a kid and you were hurt or you were sick and you called out, Mom, what was in that name? Love, comfort, security, support, all of her being. And all she represented was in her name. And it's the same with God. All his attributes, his goodness, his eternality, his holiness, his love, grace, and mercy, all that is who God is, is contained in his name. And he's passionate about his name. And we're going to see that. In Psalm 79, he says, Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name, and deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. He saves us not for our sake. Even though he benefits, our salvation is not for us. We benefit tremendously from it. But it's for his namesake. Um, If you want to do a really amazing study, study that. All the passages that talk about his namesake, um, it's amazing what he does. The Lord is so serious about his name that he addresses it in the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the, the Lord's name in vain. And this is one of those commandments that everybody knows. It's almost as popular as the John 3.16 sign that everybody holds up. It's, oh, don't use the Lord's name in vain. Um, But what this command really addresses is God protecting the power and sanctity of his name. Misrepresenting God is our common mistake. And it was throughout all of scripture. Uh, The most significant example is of Moses and the rock. We talked about it in the passage that Um, God provided for his people while they were wandering in the desert. And uh, the people were thirsty and there was no water. And God told Moses to go to the rock and strike the rock and water would pour forth and the people would be provided for. And that was a symbol of Jesus, that Jesus would be struck and he would die. And out of that, his uh, would flow living water for the people. And so Moses did that. Well, years later, they're in a similar situation and the people are thirsty and Uh, There's no water, and so God says to Moses, go and speak to the rock, and water will pour forth. Um, Establishing that it's Christ who's pouring forth the living water. Well, Moses was frustrated with the people, and he went and he struck the rock again. Well, it doesn't seem like a big deal, except that is the representation of Christ. And Christ was 
stricken once for us, for our salvation. He will not be struck again. Um, And so that misrepresentation of God was an offense, and Moses wasn't able to enter the promised land as a result. So why is God so passionate about his name? It represents all that he is. It speaks of his faithfulness, which which represents all that he does. Our faith in him and his faithfulness grows our faith. We're here, we're his, not because of anything that we've done. It's all because of his faithfulness. His character and nature are in his promises. Uh, Isaiah 48 tells us, For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath, and for my praise, I restrain it for you. In order not to cut you off, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory, I will not give to another. He cannot deny himself and he will not share his glory. When we take credit for anything, we're taking the glory of God for ourselves. Matthew 5.16 says it this way, and this is a very tough teaching for me. It says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Um, One of the reasons I struggle with this is because when I work and serve, people come up and tell me good job. They're not giving glory to God. So that means I'm doing something wrong because the glory is coming to me and not him. And our goal should always be that he receive the glory in all that we do. Saying we're a Christian and doing or saying things that are not godly is taking his name in vain. It's a misrepresentation of God. Um, as you saw in the video, Richard Wormbrandt was in prison. He was there for 14 years, but um, he writes this section I want to share with you, just his heart for, um, for what we're talking about. It says, The tick-tock of the pendulum in the prison corridor makes me conscious that time passes here as it passes for those who are free. Soon I will have to give an account for every second of my life. Today's my 40th birthday. I have to account for... 1,261,440,000 seconds. While I was making this calculation, other seconds have passed. I will have a duty to fulfill every second. The fact that I am in solitary confinement does not release me from this duty. As a rule, prisoners pass their time in trifles. I know this from my time in the Nazi prison. So this isn't his first go around with the prison. If they're not compelled to do slave labor, they, te- they tell each other stories and jokes. Sometimes they quarrel. They waste their time just as... Some millionaires do. Millionaires use lots, prisoners very little of nature's wealth, without always feeling it their duty to give something to the world. In prison, there's a feeling of being released from this duty, especially when you're in solitary confinement. Who has the right to ask anything from you when you are in such terrible circumstances? But the imperative of life knows no excuses. Duty is a categorical demand, whether you are in happiness or unhappiness, mocked, hungry, jailed, sick, falsely charged, tortured, alone, you have to serve the highest. I know my duty. It does not consist so much of doing things. Prison conditions hinder me from accomplishing deeds. Duty consists mostly in becoming something. I am what I am is the usual translation of what God said to Moses. A more literal rendering of the Hebrew, Elhe Asher Elhe, is, I will become what I will become. He himself is constantly becoming something. This is my duty too. My duty is to become more and more myself. When God formed me in the hidden places, he made me to be myself, to be in my own way the herald of his glory, to be unique as God himself is unique. I must become the greatest being that I can become here on earth. I will become what I will become, taking as my final goal Jesus who did so. Then I will be able to fulfill an outward duty even here. And what if I'm tortured? Christ saved a robber while he was on the cross. My brethren to my right and my left have sometimes brought their tortures to Christ. A communist officer beating a Christian prisoner with a rubber truncheon put his stick aside and asked, What is it about you? How is it that your face is shining? You have something like a halo around your head. How can you look at me so lovingly? I would never love a man who jailed me. How is it that you can obey this foolish commandment of your Christ to love your enemy? The Christian answered, I'm not obeying a commandment. 
It's not that I love you only because Jesus orders me to. Jesus has given me a new heart and a new character. If I wanted to hate you, I would no longer be able to do so. A nightingale cannot sound like a crow because it's a nightingale and not a crow. So a Christian can only love. That rubber truncheon has remained put aside forever. We're in hell. Sometimes during nights of horror, I look at the cup of water in my cell. Only this assures me that it is not the eternal hell because the damned have no water. So he's in circumstances where he's suffering tremendously and his heart is for, how do I show God today? How am I being held accountable for this second of my life? How much more are we in the freedom that we have responsible to become what we're becoming? There's a powerful scene in heaven when John arrives uh, in his vision in Revelation chapter 4. He sees the throne of God and God sitting on the throne and there's light emanating everywhere and it's reflecting in all these wonderful colors. And, and from the throne is lightning and thunder that just goes forth. And what happens is every time there's a peal of thunder, um, everyone in heaven stops what they're doing and they bow down and they cast their crowns before God. And, and for me, that scene is what Richard Wormbrand's talking about. God is constantly revealing himself, even in heaven, even through all eternity. He's going to continue to reveal himself in powerful, amazing ways. And we're going to be there in heaven and he's going to do it and we're just going to stop what we're doing and we're going to fall to the ground. We're going to worship him for who he is. But he calls us to be that for the people here. He calls us to that role. We are to continue becoming, to reveal Jesus in new ways. Second Corinthians 3 says this. <clears throat> We're beginning to command ourselves again. Are we beginning to command ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of recommendation to you or from you? You are our letter written on our hearts known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not from ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. You are God's ambassador. We are God's ambassador. We carry his name. This is not a burden we must drag around. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He calls us to carry his name, which is a tremendous weight, if you think about it, us representing the holy God. But when he puts it in this, this idea of, of a yoke, um, there's not a lot of farmers around here. So the idea of a yoke, the way they worked, the way they used it was, they would always take their strongest, um, most able ox and they would put them in and then they would bring the young, new, stupid ox <laughs> next to them and they would yoke them together. And as the young one would try and move and go a different way and pull at a different pace, the mature ox would just move forward and just drag that one along until he came into alignment with The one who knows. And so Jesus says, be yoked to me. Walk with me. I will teach you. I will guide you into this. And so he gives us everything we need to carry this name and to do the work that he gives us. <clears throat> he asked us to do incredible, amazing things that are beyond us. But because he gives us his name and his spirit, we're able to do it. Jesus says, they will know you're my disciples by your love. We should always be striving to grow and improve how we live this Christian life. Paul encourages the Thessalonian church in this way. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still the more. Paul's writing to a church that says, you guys are loving and you're loving well. You're doing it. He says, all the people know how much you love, but don't be satisfied. Strive to love even more. We need to have this same holy dissatisfaction with where we are. 
We should be constantly striving like Paul when he writes, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many who are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything you have, and if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal it, so that also will reveal it to you also. He's called us to a life that reflects Him and His nature by carrying His name. His name represents His faithfulness, and we put our faith in His faithfulness. Psalm 105 continues and says. Make known his deeds among the people. What deeds among the nations are we thankful for? Well, we're thankful for our our salvation. God is a God of remembrance. He established the feasts and the things that he called Israel to do as a way to remember the work he's done. So what are some of the things that he once remembered? Well, the first is sacrifice. Remember, there's a broken relationship that needed to be restored. When sin entered the world, the relationship that man had with God was broken. And the only way to restore that was through sacrifice. And so that was a constant reminder that we were to um, to be involved in. Uh, we see when Jacob goes to Bethel and he uh, sees the vision of the angels coming and going into heaven, he sets up a stone as a remembrance of that. Um, We have the Passover sacrifice for the exodus of God's people as a reminder of what he's done. Um, There's five sacrifices in Leviticus um, that he shares and stones. It's constantly a reminder um, of setting up stones. When they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, he said, take 12 stones from the riverbed and pile them up outside so that when your children and their children ask, what are these stones for? What do these rocks represent? That you tell them of the good deeds of God, the remembrance of him. He established the Feast of Israel, um, again, as a reminder, a constant reminder for them of what God has done. God reminds us of what he's done. So our response is to honor him and thanks, and give thanksgiving for what he's done. So what's the significant important, and importance of the past? When we look at our past, it increases our faith. Our faith has grown over time. Like any skill we want to develop, we have to practice it over and over. Increasing in complexity and endurance, it's the only way to develop a skill. It's the same with our faith. We need to use and practice faith. When do you know when you've really mastered a skill? It's when you can use it in a new and novel situation. It's not just what you've practiced once and continue to do, but when you can use it in a new um, and challenging situation, then you know you've really learned something. If developing faith is practice and hard work, then don't I get the credit for what I've done? I mean, we know that salvation comes from God, and we don't want to take credit for that. Um, as a matter of fact, we're, we're very familiar with... Um, with the grace that God gave us to save us. And in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, It's by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. This grace we know very well. But then 1 Corinthians chapter 15 adds this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, In which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I have preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Here Paul introduces an action of grace that speaks of the holding fast. He gives us the strength to hold fast. Now what's interesting is we're good with the grace that requires salvation. We're good knowing that God saved us and it wasn't anything of ourselves. But I think the second part of grace is what we struggle with the most. There's responsibility for maintaining that work. The hard work of maintaining the relationship. But here's the consequence if we don't understand this. Look at Galatians chapter 3. 
Verse 3, it says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, the good work you started through the salvation of the Spirit, are you now working out of your own strength to try and perfect that? So what this shows us is we're actually capable of taking the work and grace of God and distorting it to make it about us and our glory. Instead, we need to maintain the attitude of Paul when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain. But I labored labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God. So here's the second part of the grace that we have to understand. Grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. But it's also the power given to us by God to do the work that he's called us to. This is what Paul's referring to when he says, I worked harder than anyone else. Is he bragging about his effort in his work? No, he realizes he can't do any of it. What God called him to, the work that he did was all through what what God had given him the strength for. Peter knew of this strength as well, this type of grace. And, and um, when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God takes us to the end of ourselves so that we have to fully rely on him. And when that happens, when we've exhausted our own strength and when we've given up on everything, we should mark those moments in our life. Just like he says to bake towers of stone, we need to mark those times in our life so we can look back on those and see how God worked and how God delivered us and how God took us through those events in our life. It's important here to understand that we have two options for working, by the grace of God or by our own strength. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul teaches this, according to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another's building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than that one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This explains that we have the foundation of Jesus Christ, but we can build on that. When we build on it out of the works of the Spirit, we're adding to what God has done. If we build out of our own strength, the wood, hay, and stubble, it gets burned up. It says each man's work will be evident as they will be revealed by fire. We will present to God what we have left. It's our role to make sure that we're doing the work that comes from grace, from the grace of God that results in something to offer God rather than in our own strength because that'll be burned up. It's worthless. The work we do for God in the spirit are the deeds that we're to share with all the nations, the things that we're supposed to give thanks about, to give thanks to God for. Here's where we again thank God for the grace that he's provided to do the work. But we can also thank him for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which helps us determine by what motives we're working. God does not leave us to figure out which which work we're doing. Is this of him or is this of us? He gives us the Holy Spirit. When Jesus introduces the Holy Spirit to his disciples, he introduces him as the counselor who reveals what is of God and what's not. Psalm 105 continues and says, Sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. How seriously does God take thankfulness? We know it's polite to say thank you when people do things. Our parents have raised us to to say thank you, write thank you cards for gifts that were given to us and notes. We know it's a good thing, and we may may even think it's the right thing to do. But what does God say about giving thanks? 
in Romans 1.18 through 32, um, Paul describes the process in which man falls from God. And in verse 21, he says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And this downward spiral progresses from here. But what's interesting is there's two things that they didn't do that removed them from God in his presence. They didn't honor him, and they didn't give thanks. In God's view, giving thanks is not a nicety that we should participate in. He sees it as a requirement on our part for what he has done on his part. So herein lies the problem when we do not practice the discernment that is present in the Holy Spirit. If we're thinking we're accomplishing things in our own strength, we're not giving thanks to God because we're the ones doing the work. In reality, though, his grace is giving each breath we take and the strength to do the work that we're called to do. We're to look back on our lives and see the work that he's, that is done by God through us. We should be about our Father's business. Now let's look at 2 Corinthians 3, uh, starting at verse 4. It says, Such confidence we have through Christ towards God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones come with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently on the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to, to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory, because the glory that surpasses it. For if, that's what, for if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains in glory. The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant and what God provides in us today. More glory. What is the work that we're to be doing? We're sufficient in Christ. Outside of Jesus is the letter of the law. What we do in our own works equals death. But what we do in Christ equals life. And we're being read by others. We're the letters being read by others. Our thankfulness is in the grace of God to do the work. He will be glorified in my life, either in my obedience, as others watch me obey, or in my disobedience, as God has shown others what not to do. I don't want God to say, look at Lance, don't do that. (laughs) That's not what you're to do. Do this. And he does that. We have lots of examples in the Bible of what not to do. And, and God's going to use that. He gets glory either way. Because even in my disobedience, he continues to love me. And he gets glory even in my stupidity. But I, but I hate giving him glory in that way. <laughs> I would much rather give him glory in my obedience. Last week, Tim shared about the response of Paul as he wrote the book of Romans. Tim was sharing the the, the importance of context. And after 11 chapters of Paul writing and building this context, he he explodes into this this moment of, of glorifying God. And in verse 33, he writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I'm not going to make you repeat it a bunch. Just, but remember... The context and how, but what's interesting is after this moment of just glorifying God, what comes next, how he responds to that. How should the child of God respond to the work and the glory of God? Well, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So after this moment of raptured glory, his response is, 
as priests, we must sacrifice. And so what does that look like? We're called the kingdom of priests. The role of the priest is to present the sacrifice before God. But if the sacrificial system is over, then what are we to do? Most people think, well, that's Old Testament. New Testament, there's no more sacrifice. So what is the priest to do? So let's look at these sacrifices because of the five sacrifices mentioned, three of them are voluntary. The first one was the peace sacrifice or the thanksgiving offering. And it was for relational purposes. Essentially, it was a picnic with God. You would bring your sacrifice. You would put it on the altar. The priest would sacrifice it. And you would sit with your family. And you would eat with God. It was this amazing time of communion. Um, And it was a provision God made for restoring relationship. Because sin breaks the relationship. And here God's saying, come come to me. Let's just hang out. Um, Let's commune together. And so he made this provision. What's interesting about that is uh, if you couldn't eat the food all at once, um, you could eat on it for three days. But after the third day, you had to get rid of it. Um, And Christ fulfills that in his three days in the tomb. He couldn't stay for because it would have been a violation of the sacrifice that he was presenting for us. So cool. For me, this sacrifice looks like daily time and word in the prayer, spontaneous worship, Um, waking up in the morning with a song in my head that comes from some I don't know. But on the days that it's not there, um, I get worried. (laughs) I pray, God, I, I I need you. The next offering is the grain offering. This also was voluntary. And uh, it was required that you bring finely ground wheat or flour. Um, and the grinding process was, um, was reducing it to its finest element. And for us, um, this is asking God to challenge and stretch us. Um, I pray that God uses me and my family as an example to others that he strips away all that is not of God and not of himself. And so this grinding and, and, um, and purifying offering is something that we can voluntarily come to God and give to him on a regular basis as well. The third voluntary offering was a burnt offering. And this one represented total dedication. This was laying down one's own life. This is the, this is the sacrifice of atonement. 1 John 3.16 tells us, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. When we offer this sacrifice, we're not in any way saying that we're making atonement for others. Jesus is the only one that can make that sacrifice. And he's made it once and for all. But when we lay our lives down, we're imitating Jesus and reminding others of what he's done on our behalf. It was his love for us that drove him to the cross. And as his disciples, we too must be driven to the cross by love for one another and love for the lost. We need to be sacrificing ourselves once to meet the needs of others. So as a kingdom of priests, we're required to be giving these sacrifices as well. The other two sacrifices were um, dealing with sin. One was general sin. The other was a trespass offering when you knew you committed sin. It was intentional. It was, um, and there, First John deals with that by saying, if we confess our sins one to another, um, having accountability, being able to share the burden that we have one with another, that's the way that we fulfill the, the, the sacrifices, priests that we're called to. Again, when Paul's writing, he's overwhelmed with this praise for God and then his response is I need to sacrifice I need to sacrifice so that I can be more like him just as Jesus sacrificed himself to restore the relationship with God that sin destroyed these sacrifices restore and maintain our relationship with God we need to be thankful and share with others what God is doing in us and through us just like parents teach their children to say thank you We have to be taught and we have to learn to be thankful. This is of ultimate importance to God. He reveals over and over in his word that we're to mark and commemorate events so that we can look back and give thanks. The monuments of stone 
We're to be placed in prominent positions and festivals. We need to have these things in our lives that we can refer to. So when children ask, what is that for? What is that from? We can tell them the goodness and the provision of God. Um, Here's some examples from David, a man after God's own heart. Um, In Psalm 9, he says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. In 54, he adds, willingly, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name. O Lord, for it is good. In 57, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. In 79, he adds, so we, your people, we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. We give thanks to you forever. To all generations, we will tell of your praise. In 86, he says, I will give thanks to you, Lord, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. And in 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. When Jesus meets with his disciples for the last time before he's crucified, he gives them a commission, the bread and the wine. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Psalm 105 also says, let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. So what does remembering the deeds of the Lord in our lives and being thankful produce? The result of thankfulness is gladness and joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, God, I just I want to thank you for all that you do, for the way that you just provide for us. God, you gave everything everything you are, you gave for us. And you ask us to do the same, to give who we are so that we can carry the name of the holy creator God, to be the letters read by those around us, to be an encouragement to the church, to be the light to the world. God, that you just give us your spirit to know you, to know your heart. God, I pray that we would just embrace this call, call the priesthood, the call to serve, the call to bear your name, and that we would be an encouragement to one another. God, be with us now as we sing your praises. In your holy and precious name, I pray. Amen.